This is Salt and Spine. There was no plan at all. I was just some naive, stupid dude that wanted to follow his passion. And I Uh think if I had this all calculated and out on paper and worked through a business plan, it never would have happened. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. You're tuning in for a special episode. It's the 2022 Baking Month. All of December, we're celebrating some of the year's best baking books with a handful of author interviews, dozens of featured recipes, excerpts, and more. Make sure you're subscribed to our Substack to get it all. Today's Baking Month guest is Brian Noyes. Brian is the founder of Red Truck Bakery, the rural Virginia spot that's become a national attraction and drawn the praise of everyone from over Oprah Winfrey to Barack Obama. During a career in art direction at major media outlets in Washington, D.C., Brian would spend his weekends baking pies and other goods. Before long, he'd purchased an old red pickup truck from Tommy Hilfiger, no less, and was selling out of his sweet treats. Two locations and two cookbooks later, Red Truck Bakery continues, and Brian's latest cookbook, the Red Truck Bakery Farmhouse Cookbook, goes beyond sweets to include rustic, savory fare. We met up with Brian while he was on tour in Napa, California, to talk cookbook. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Well, you bet. Hi, Brian. <laughs> yes. Glad to be here. Thrilled to, to meet up with you today and talk about your latest cookbook, the Red Truck Bakery Farmhouse Cookbook. Uh, but first, we like to start just by learning a little bit more about you, your life, your career, how you got to writing um, cookbooks. So I know you grew up in, in the Monterey area, California, I think more specifically Pacific Grove, right? Right. My family goes back five generations to Pacific Grove. Okay. And can you talk about your relationship to food and cooking as a, as a child? You write a little bit about it in this book, you know, in the abundance of fresh produce and, and say, you know, I thought everybody ate like this, but what was your relationship to food like growing up? Um, it seemed I was always at somebody's knee in the kitchen. It was my grandmother or my mom or an aunt. And um, there's a lot of great produce out here. My my grandmother was making apricot jam and uh, persimmon cookies. And um, I, I loved seeing things coming right out of the ground or, or just pick nearby or pick from our back door out here and making it into food that we would enjoy that night or maybe, you know, over the summer in jams or something. Um, we're, we were very close to the, uh, on Fisherman's Wharf, uh-huh. uh, in Monterey and abalone sandwiches back then were kind of the norm. Um, we were eating tacos from some of the trucks that were servicing the, the day laborers that were working the strawberry fields. Sure. And I just kind of thought everybody ate like that until I flew back to my paternal grandmother's house in Western North Carolina and uh, she was a former one-room schoolhouse school teacher. And when she took me to a meet-and-three diner with uh, what, to me, I considered foreign cuisine, uh, she realized that she had a big project ahead trying to acquaint me with Southern cooking. But she she took it on, and she She, she did. did take it on. <laughs> I mean, that was on the way from the airport in Asheville, and uh-huh. we got to her house— and put her purse on the bed, I'm sure, and said, go fetch me that buttermilk that arrived today. We're going to make some biscuits. Sure. And I mean, we I, I showed up in that diner. The menu was put in front of me. 
I didn't know what collard greens were or, or stewed butter beans or okra. And I just handed the menu to her and said, please order for me. And yeah. It, it was great. And and you dedicate the book to her, actually. I do. Right? She had a pretty big impact on she, you culinarily. She did. And uh, she taught me um, a lot in that little kitchen um, from summer trips there um, every year or so to when I eventually moved east and lived in D.C. and was, you know, within driving distance. And sure. the uh, culinary education continued. You also had a, a, an uncle, Stan, I think, who yes. lived in Florida, who also played a big sort of culinary um, part in your, your childhood. Right. And Uncle Stan was my grandmother's son. Okay. Uh, she had two sons. The other, of course, was my dad. Sure. And um, it was my only uncle. And my mom was an only child. My dad only had one brother, so he was it. And so that's where the load of cousins were now in, in Florida. And he had... 11 kids. Wow. And um, so I had 11 cousins uh-huh. that I didn't know because the entire country was between us. But so right. um, I, I was in, I was working in a newspaper in Newport Beach and I ended up um, wanting to go east and I found a job listed for a new city magazine company that was just starting a publication in Tampa. And they lived on the other side of the bay in Clearwater. It was perfect. I moved there. The culinary education in the noise kitchen continued with uh-huh. my uncle. Uh huh. And you you went to work for a newspaper. You, your family was also in newspapers my, in California, my dad right? Was, your yeah. Dad? He was. We. Um, I'm back out here visiting right now, and we're, we're driving through these little towns that I realized, oh, my dad worked at that newspaper. We, uh-huh. we drove through Stockton. He worked at the Stockton Leader we, okay. uh, or Stockton Record. Okay. He worked at the Oakdale Leader. Um, we lived there. I drove by that house. And um, he, he started off in Monterey at the Monterey Peninsula Herald. Um, so it was in my blood from the earliest days. Sure. And you, you went to Cal State Fullerton? I did go to Cal State Fullerton, studied um, journalism and communication design. Okay. So you're, you're working at that um, newspaper in Tampa. At some point, you get a call from, I think, was it from Ben Bradley? Yes. Calls um, you and says, working on a Sunday magazine, essentially? Hey, are you interested in uh, designing in Washington, D.C.? Uh-huh. Um, I've got a Sunday magazine that's in the works, and we need somebody on that. And that was a, an easy yes for you? That was an <laughs> yeah. easy yes. I mean, I mean he, I admired that guy. I mean, this yeah. was all the, all the President's Men era, right. and everybody knew who he was. And um, my dad was so proud when I took a job at the Washington Post sure. and just skyrocketed right, right past what he had been doing. Sure. Yeah, and you spent a, a fair amount of time there working as an art director, also working at Smithsonian Magazine, working as an art director for a long time. At some point, you become more serious about this hobby of baking and cooking. But throughout that time, are you kind of, you know, dinner parties, cooking on the side? What's your relationship to food like in that part of your career? I played a lot in the kitchen. And I I mean, we lived uh, just north of uh, downtown D.C. in DuPont Circle, Mm -hmm. had a lot of friends there. We were we did a lot of entertaining. Um, But, you know, in, in the tiniest little galley kitchen. Right. Um, but what they loved about me at the post was every Tuesday we had a staff meeting and every Tuesday somebody else had the assignment of bringing in the food. Okay. So mostly it was bagels. <laughs> and um, when it was my turn, it was 
raspberry frangipan tarts or gruyere (laughs) quiche. And my editor loved it because he says the turnout is always at least twice the, uh, the amount of people is, are usually here at these meetings. Sure. <laughs> I think Brian's day was circled on the calendar. Right. Yeah, people knew. You started to build this reputation. And, and at some point, you start taking the baking hobby more seriously, right? You start taking Fridays off and selling your, your baked goods. When does that sort of happen for yeah, you? Yeah, that started a little later. But what I did do first was take time off and study um, culinary uh-huh. um, skills. And I, I went through the Culinary Institute of America, which on my book tour in D.C., I always have to remind people that it's the other CIA. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> um, I went through the baking and French breads uh, and cafe pastries program there. Uh, okay. And then I came back another summer and did it all over again. Uh, I had the same instructor both times. He caught on to me, and he says, what do you think about coming in at 3 a.m.? We have to do a bake for um, the, the the shop and the cafe every morning. And I said, that's why I'm here. Uh-huh. And so I learned a lot compressed in those hours, uh, many sleepless <laughs> hours. But, you know, that kind of was training for what I ended up doing anyway. Um, so I went through that. Um, outside of D.C. was a incredible cooking school called l'academy de cuisine mm-hmm. and that was started by uh, roland messnier who was the former white house pastry chef who actually just died last month mm-hmm. and um i probably learned more there than anywhere else I, I also went through a program at king arthur flower sure and then went down to mexico with uh, chef rick bayless who taught me how to cook Mexican in a Oaxacan former convent. Um, yeah. So some of those recipes actually made it into my my repertoire and the new cookbook. Yeah. So you, this is over the course of years. You're you're yeah. increasing your culinary education. Still, like, are you? Is the whole time you're like you've got a business trajectory, or is it just a hobby and you're wanting to educate? No, yourself? there was no plan at all. No I plan. was just some naive, stupid dude that wanted to follow his passion and i uh-huh. think if i had this all calculated and out on paper and worked through a business plan it never would have happened but it was sure. just um me kind of driving around uh exploring the east coast with a copy of road food in my glove mm-hmm. compartment which kind of just outlined the small mom and pop places around the mid-atlantic and then even f- further through the south as we explored and those those little diners and cafes and bakeries, I mean, they just the funkier the better. They really spoke to me, and I just thought, man, I, this is what I want to do someday. Yeah, and one in particular, I know you 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 go to the Jimtown store here in California, and that felt like a somewhat pivotal moment for that vision. It, it, it was um, coming back to Monterey to see family and visit. Most of my brothers and sisters live out here, and uh, one lives in Santa Rosa, so. Okay. I uh, spent some time with her. I was driving around maybe Healdsburg or, or um, St. Helena, and uh-huh. in a bookstore, I found the Jimtown Store cookbook. And I hadn't heard of it, but it's I just grabbed that thing and looked through it and realized, well, they're just an hour away. I'm driving there right now. Yeah. So, And it was great. It was just this cute little thing way out on the in the Alexander Valley. Um, with an old red fire truck parked out front and an arrow that said, uh, good food, I think, pointing at the entrance. Mm-hmm. And it was a bustling little 
mecca in the middle of nowhere and lots of hustle and bustle that we sat down there the kids kept coming in and out the screen door was slamming sure. it, the shelves are full of fun food items homemade cookies and pies little funky toys the kids played with the toys the parents had the the brie sandwiches and yeah and, um that's when i hit the table and said this is exactly what i want yeah and and how does that all then come to fruition? I know you, you end up you buying your own red truck. <laughs> so, so yeah, like maybe after 9-11, thought we're pretty close to <laughs> D.C. We, we're living in Arlington. Uh-huh. And it thought it might be nice to have a, a weekend getaway about an hour away. And so we didn't know anybody out there. Um, we found a little farmhouse. And um, ever the art director, I thought... <laughs> We need an old red truck out right. in front. Right. And so I found that online from a motorsports company in, in New York. And then they turned me over to the seller who turned out to be Tommy Hilfiger. And mm-hmm. so I purchased it. He trailered it on down and it, it sat in the farmhouse, in front of the farmhouse for a good while. So I, I, I started baking on Friday afternoons. I'd leave the poster, Smithsonian Magazine, uh-huh. a little early. And uh, I saw one of my editors at a, a book talk in D.C., and I, I yelled to him at the back of the room. I said, did you ever notice I snuck out on Fridays? He <laughs> says, yeah, but you always brought in pies on Monday, so it worked <laughs> right. out. But um, so I would bake, just a line of things, bake uh, pies, cakes, take them to this little country store. And people were there suddenly before they even opened, waiting for me to show up. Yeah. You start to build a following, and then there's there's a moment where it really takes off, right? Where um, you have this New York Times story. That was pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, a, a friend of mine uh, who later became the, the mayor of Little Washington, where the inn at Little Washington is, uh-huh. yeah. um, was known for his parties with his wife. And New York Times writer Marion Burroughs evidently was there um, at, I think, a Fourth of July party. And um, she sent me an email the following week. I'd never had communicated with her. And she said, uh, I just had your your food at the Sullivan's, and I'd like to write a little story for our, our Christmas package. Uh, would you be interested? Uh-huh. <laughs> My only response was, duh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of right. course. <laughs> and, and you saw the impact immediately, right? You write about how yeah, the yeah. website traffic just like. Two dozen hits on Tuesday, and when that Wednesday food section came out, I had 57,000 hits. Yeah. And the mailman that showed up to pick up these hundred or saw a hundred packages on the front porch just couldn't believe the load. And I said, man, that's just what's not fitting in the house. That's the yeah. overflow. And there were, wow. there, were, there were maybe 280 parcels going out that week. That week that yeah. the, the piece ran. Right. And it was just success ever since i mean well, sure hardships and things yeah but, yeah, yeah yeah so that's that's <laughs> where the, the naivete comes yeah. in it's like okay that's a signal that we got to do something so uh-huh. my other heft white who's a residential architect and i started looking at possible um quaint destination locations i i uh, was also art director of preservation magazine for the national trust so sure you know i didn't want to uh, be next if I opened a bakery, I didn't want to be next door to a nail salon and some strip center out on the bypass or something. I wanted an old building with integrity. And yeah. 
right then we found for lease this 1921 SO service station in our county seat, right next door to the county courthouse. Okay. And it's on a, a cute little quaint, well done, um, traditional Main Street. Yeah. And the beauty of it, with that gas station there, it was the only place on all of Main Street that had its own parking lot out front. Okay. And so, yeah. right. bingo, there's a place to put the red truck. And so it's yeah. kind of this, still to this day, the beacon sitting at the top of the hill. Not to, to skip over all of the other many successes the bakery has had, but let's get to the cookbooks then. So, you know, bakery takes off. I know you now have two, you've expanded to a larger location. You've had a lot of success with the bakery. When did you decide it was time to write a cookbook? The first one, um, in 2018, a couple right. of years ago now. Yeah. I, um, a friend had written a story about us, a freelancer for the, for the Washington Post. Again, right at Christmas, it was kind uh-huh. of like a day in the life of a bakery at Christmas and focused on our almond stolen, which is very traditional. And when I learned to make, uh, I think that was at L'Academy de Cuisine. Okay. Um, so good story. And then he pitched a, um, an agent on maybe creating a book. And so, I kind of took it over after a while um, because it, it had to be in my words and not not the, the words of a guy from upstate New York who was <laughs> trying to talk Southern. I mean, sure. the, the first round felt like it was written in a rocking chair on a Cracker Barrel porch. Uh-huh. And, um, so I kind of yanked it back. Yeah. Um, so um, that got done. That came out. Obama wrote the back cover blurb for the cookbook. Yeah. Um, and um, it, I think it's in its sixth printing now. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. And then the second cookbook I know sort of came about from COVID, right? From the lockdowns. And yeah, again, really here's, it went off. here's the little farmhouse out in rural Virginia, which was away from people. Our governor had just shut down the state. This was early March. Um, ironically, I was just supposed to have a pie day pie event at the James Beard house. And we were cooking all pie. I mean, baking pies. It was going to be a pie meal with savory pies, sweet pies scheduled for pie day, Saturday, March 14th of 2020. Right. Uh The day that everything shut down and it was the first event canceled by the James Beard house. Um, So we had a little in, in town, pie day event at a bookstore near us instead i I try to support independent bookstores and this is my favorite one sure and it was so creepy because none of us knew how to act i mean nobody wore masks but nobody you know do i touch food that somebody else just served or or do i get too close and we were we were all kind of spooked and and the bookstore folks later said that that was that was our last event because we we still don't know how to behave. Yeah. So uh-huh. um, we hightailed it to the farmhouse and packed up. We stayed out there for a while. The bakery is still going. We realized we just had to kind of close down the interior of it. Sure. Um, and then I quickly set up a, a website where people could order online and we would deliver it to a table in our parking lot. Uh-huh. And then we opened up a side window where they could come up and order. But um, so the bakery hummed along. I was uh, just going through a full shoulder replacement, so I had to have some recovery time anyway. So I was there. 
I had my pile of my grandmother's recipes and some family recipes, some some requests from customers of what they wanted at the bakery, and it was a perfect time to just start playing on some things. Plus a little folder of what followers and fans wanted that wasn't in the first cookbook. So if ever there was going to be another cookbook, I had a list to kind of refer to. Sure. But, you know, in the meantime, it's it's March, April. It's, um, you know, spring produce is coming along. We were on the edge of the Shenandoah Valley. It's very fertile. There's a lot of farmers. I have a great relationship with those guys who are growing, you know, items for our pies. Yeah. And, and I mean, there was nowhere to sell the stuff because people wouldn't show up at farmer's markets. I mean, nobody yeah. wanted to leave their house. Right. We, I mean, we didn't know what would happen if we did. So right. I just thought, well, what about coming up with some recipes, some more savory that used local farmer's market ingredients? Um, and then just about the same time as everybody else across the country's lockdown, I started seeing on Instagram postings of dads with daughters cooking our uh, ma- making our muffins or and uh-huh. posting pictures proudly. Um, this woman in outside of Seattle that had a home design store posted a video of this woman who had come in. She's a judge in outside of Seattle who was holed up with her adult daughter through the pandemic, and they started baking their way through the first cookbook from front cover to, to back cover. Okay. And I just thought, okay, there it is. It's families. It's comfort food. That's all they're doing now. I've got my list of what I want in a new book. I've got all my family recipes. I'm writing a book on family projects and comfort food. Yeah. And, and that's where that came from. Um I pitched my agent on that. I'm still in a sling from a shoulder replacement. I'm typing this proposal left-handed. Uh-huh. Um, she shopped it to um, Francis Lamb, who um, is of a splendid table, of course, right. and, a, um, and an at-large editor for Clarkson Potter. Mm-hmm. And he liked the idea, and he, he, liked, he saw that it was a now thing, and we had to act on it. And, and then he went silent, and... You know, then we never heard anything back, and then she she started pushing him, and he didn't respond. And we we thought, well, should we just shop this to somebody else? And then one morning, like a Thursday morning at ten o'clock, he sent my agent an email and said, "I want that book. Here's why I haven't been in touch. I was just named the editor in chief of Clarkson Potter." That's going to be announced in half an hour. I wanted you to know first, and I want to bring this book in as one of my first projects. Mm-hmm. So we were well on our way, and I was typing madly. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and you, you mentioned it is a balance of sweet and savory recipes. Right. It's a mixture um, balanced of both. Yeah, that's the big difference between the first book and the second. I mean, right. The first one's a very bakery book. This is more of farmhouse cooking with, with the best pies that we can make from our farmland of course yeah um we we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording but obviously your your background is in art direction and in publishing and and media so i'm curious how you approach these two cookbooks and in particular how the second one may have been different having i mean you've worked in publishing a long time but a cookbook is sort of a different beast right is that is that at least your experience when you did your first one yeah but um i think the most boring printed piece in the world is a cookbook proposal it's just it's a cookbook writer who just or a food writer who's just submitting 
pages and pages of black and white. Right. And, and here we go. And here's my mission. And here's what I want to do. Right. But I packaged mine like I package everything. And it had color photos. And it had nice type treatments. And uh-huh. here's, here's even my thoughts on maybe what the cover could look like. Just, just so that whoever's reading this already gets an idea of what, what I'm trying to communicate and what's in my head. And, you know, I mean, what kind of weird animal am I for a publisher? It's a cookbook writer who's also an art director. And the fr- through the first book, I just pulled back and I'd, I'd offer suggestions. The first book in the intro, it told the story that you just heard from kind of start to finish, but mm-hmm. the photos in it, we're completely out of order. Here's a big glamour shot of our new place. But then pretty soon later comes a little photo of the, the old gas station. And, sure. you know, I suggest, well, why don't we at least put this in, in order and kind of reorganize the photography of, of the book, or at least the, the front matter. And they said, yes, and it worked out really well. So for the second book, in my funny little rendering of, you know, here's my concept for the book. I just looked back at it the other day, and the appearance of the book is is really so close to what I suggest in the type treatments and everything. Uh-huh. Um, I still didn't want to step on the toes of the designer. Ian Dingman is is a great designer for Penguin Random House, and he did both the first book and the second. But he, I think, he caught on that we speak the same language. I mean, we were kind of typography brethren you know and we had a great appreciation for it and we talked the same language and um you know what i didn't have for the for the first book cookbook was the phone number of the designer so i can now send text to him and like hey how about this And, and so we had this great relationship going um the cover packaging of publications was my big skill but that's when I just knew, okay, I'm going to be a cookbook writer for here. And I, I'm one of the marketing guys at Clarkson Potter and Penguin Random House to, to do what they want. And, but they knew enough to kind of submit proposals. The beauty of the first cookbook is it wasn't a cake on the cover, but it right. was the red truck sitting in an apple orchard right near our bakery, mm-hmm. piled high with old crates of apples, which is exactly how we got all the produce we needed to make pies through the fall. And, sure. And it was the most perfect shot. And yeah. I really wanted to carry that through with the second book and get the truck on the cover. But um, I wasn't going to get pushy about it. Um, Dwight and I one time went to Nashville on the book tour of the of the first book mm-hmm. and did Parnassus books and the places we needed to go and places we were eager to go. But then we just happened to slide into the Country Music Hall of Fame gift shop. And they okay. had a whole table set up. With the Red Truck Bakery cookbook. Okay. And with a big display. And so I was like, I mean, I didn't know anything about it. We yeah. were just in there looking for T-shirts or something. And so I went to the manager and said, hey, why? I'm the guy that wrote that. Why <laughs> Why are you doing this? And she said, um, it's our biggest non-music book seller here. And I said, well, why is that? She said, it's that Red Truck. Yeah. And it's just spoke to that audience. So I used that story to illustrate it with, with the publisher um, it didn't go very far. They still wanted to try it with other versions. So I did this kind of runaround where I then took concepts that Clarkson Potter had, which they worked with with me. And um, how about this picture, Brian, or something? I've, it's always a food item and not a truck. Sure. Um, so I sent 
maybe five or six concepts unbeknownst to them. It probably was not a good thing to do, but I I emailed them to some of my favorite bookstores because these are the people who are going to feature this book and sell it. And they, you know, they know what, what moves and what doesn't and what grabs the eye and what's going to be immediate attraction. So it was a good exercise for me because it was the results were kind of all over the place. A lot of people like the truck, a lot of people like the cake or slice of pie or something. So it's sure. You did a little focus group. Yeah, and it had didn't quite results, teach me yeah. a whole lot other than it doesn't have to be a red truck. So yeah. I said, okay, if you guys put the red truck in the farmhouse on the back cover, I'm I'm happy. Yeah, and you and it's it's nice red. These strawberries, I I, yes. I like that we have red. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's a picture in there that's one of my favorite photos of a bluebird plate yes. with a um, slice of lemon chest pie, and that was my first choice once I knew what was going to be. A food dish on the cover, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, once I saw red strawberries in a big, homey, rustic uh, strawberry shortcake, I thought, yeah, I, I can easily go for that. Or, or uh, another option was a cherry pie. That was the photo was just a little too dark. I thought so. Sure, this thing's bright. It's it is. Yeah, it's white. It's it's shiny. It's it's perfect. Yeah. It's great to hear about that reception to your first book, and and I imagine this book too, because they are personal books, right? Like in in this book, I know there's a picture of your your grandmother's dinner bell, for instance, which is which has a name. If you can <laughs> share, you know, what when, was it again? I mean, I, I I just loved everything about her. I love going there. I mean, it's like a kid should act to a grandmother, especially right. when she teaches you how to cook. Um, but in, in her kitchen. Above the stove on this little dusty shelf was this just this bell, a dinner bell. And on, on the stem coming up, I, I kind of think she did this. I'm not sure. But there was a head that uh-huh. was probably made from a hickory nut or something. And it had a penciled-in face, a smiley face. And I think it had a little cloth bonnet over it. But it had like a blouse or a dress. But then on it was this little apron. And in her... One room schoolhouse English teacher cursive handwriting yeah. was the name Isabel, which was <laughs> yeah. I mean even to an eight year old kid or something, it's like hey, that's pretty clever, right? Right. Yeah, I love that. I loved um, that story and that we saw a photo of it too in the book. But I think that's what's so intriguing about your books is they're so there all the, are these personal touches to them, but they're also sort of so open and inviting, and particularly from a rural cooking and baking perspective, right? And I'm curious how you think about your books in relation to we've seen i think a lot more attention in cookbook publishing to rural authors you know the um well you of course had ronnie lundy who wrote the foreword to your book who's wrote a couple incredible books vivian howard you know has had a ton of attention towards her books how do you think about your work in relation to that sort of i don't know if we call it a movement but that sort of trend of more attention to regional and rural american cooking well, you know, that that's kind of my world, and, and those are the people I hang out with. I know Vivian, I know Ronnie, uh, I know Ian Bowden from the Shack in Stanton, and uh-huh. Ed Lee in, in Kentucky. Sure. Um, I'm, I think the most valuable thing I did after I opened a bakery was become a member of the Southern Foodways Alliance, uh-huh. and they meet usually in Oxford, Mississippi every October. Sometimes there's a, a parallel symposium in the spring or so and and the spring changes to other towns and the first time i went it was lexington kentucky Uh uh-huh um 
So, but I just, I, I met all those people. I met Ronnie Lundy there. Um, Vivian was doing a, a cooking demo there. And we all just, I mean, it was kind of our little world in this room, but it was also like our little world in the corner of the country. And we worked off of each other and we, we bounced off of each other. And Vivian, when she was coming up, with um, right after her first cookbook and, and starting to do her second, I'd start getting these um, big canning jars, mason jars, right. <laughs> with her special sauces that yes. she she conjured up and wanted me to try those. And I mean, it it was kind of our fun little world. So you know, I I tracked. Um, what Ronnie did with Vittles, which won not one but two James Beard awards. Right. Um, John T. Edge at the at Southern Foodways, the SFA, asked me to introduce her for one of their conferences in in Lexington, Kentucky, and I I gave this great little intro to her. Um, I, I I've learned that sending food to people is is a great business card, and that they remember <laughs> yeah. you, and so. You know, Ronnie was getting our granola, and then she got her Lexington bourbon cake, and she writes about it in the foreword to the new book. And at one point, she just said, "Stop sending me food, or I'm going to have to get new shocks for my my Astro van." (laughs) (laughs) But um, I mean, that that book was great because it told a lot of stories. It wasn't just recipes. But she's in the mountains at this place, and here's this guy finding ramps and then here's an interview about ramps and then her here's her ramp recipe and it taught me how to kind of structure a cookbook and just tell stories and then there's no greater storyteller than vivian in front of a microphone oh, or, she's great yeah <laughs> and she just it, it's so funny i mean and it's so well crafted and and i mean is it because they're southern i don't know but they're they're storytellers, and I've lived in the South long enough that I, it feels like that's the right thing to do. And so, as you can see, once you get me going, it's hard to stop me. And I, you know, and I've I've got a lot of stories to tell. And I think, I think that's an important aspect of a book like this. And I hear that a lot now. Just the book's been out one month, mm-hmm. and people talk about the stories. I. I like the recipes, but I love your stories, both in the intro and then just in the recipe headers as you introduce a story, a, a, a recipe, and, and tell why it's important to you or the family aspect behind it. And I think that's pretty valuable. Yeah. Is that what you say makes a great cookbook? What does I, it boil down to for you? I think so. I mean, it's... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I... Um, we were at a bookstore just down the street and there were some older women walking in. They each said, we don't cook anymore, but we like to read and we like to read about food. So, you know, yeah, I don't know if they're going to make that strawberry shortcake, but they, they like to know the story behind it. Yeah. Well, we always end with little games. So we've got our card, our culinary cards here. And I thought we'd just play, I'm going to call it Red Truck Recipes. I'm, I'm not great at coming up with witty names or anything, <laughs> but Red Truck Recipes. So we've got flavor cards, which are herbs and spices, uh, vegetables, of course, proteins, obviously, um, self-explanatory and secret ingredients, which can be kind of obscure or just random items. So I thought we would, you know, pretend you're out at your home. Um, you 
get a little basket on the front porch and these are the the ingredients you have to work with so you can draw one from each of the the decks there and that's what shows up on on your front step and that you've got to use for you know dinner or um, dessert tonight how's that sound that sounds great not that i'm going to be good at this but i tell you this is the way it is in my house maybe every three or four months sure. when the pantry is groaning and just like everything's outdated and dwight says you got to make something with this stuff yeah and so <laughs> i would go through it and i'll i'll pick four cards and that's exactly what i've got you know like okay i'll come up with something yeah you've got some real world, world practice for this so um, right. I'll, I'll pick four and then talk about them sure that works perfectly okay so we have pl- flavor vegetable i'll dig deep for yeah protein and secret ingredients is my favorite category so yeah. i'll take the top card okay let's see what we're working with chickpea is about the last item I found in my pantry, and okay. this is what I was thinking of. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> I could have I, right on theme. I then. could have been there. Okay, mint. Okay, so we're getting okay. kind of Indian going. Uh-huh. Uh, the vegetable is carrots. Okay, and this is perfect because this is kind of a any kind of cuisine. Yeah, and then I always throw my southern or at least regional accent at something in my own twist. And of all things, my secret ingredient is Scrapple. So, oh, okay. Um, all right. <laughs> that's a little northern, further yeah, north yeah. than us. But um, now do I have to come up with something? What? Yeah, what would you do? Well, it's not going to be breakfast, I don't think. Um, I think I'm, I'd chop up the carrots. Um, I, I'd probably roast those a little bit with some okay. mint. But I might dig around to see if there's rosemary nearby. Sure. Um, I'll set that aside. I'll... I'll I'll start cooking the chickpeas and, and maybe some kind of tomato sauce if I can find it. I'll add the mint and the carrot. And then I might just pretend it's like my twist on a vegetarian Indian food and pretend that the scrapple, uh, or, or Asian anyway, scrapple was more like tofu and just okay. get it in there for, for mouthfeel. Okay. Yeah, a little stew, a tomato-based stew, chickpeas, yeah, yeah. carrots. It sounds nice and comforting. I mean, Joe, Joe Yonan, from the, the yeah. food editor of The Post, um, moderated my first talk at Politics and Prose Bookstore in, in D.C. Yeah. a couple of weeks ago. And he pointed out that, Brian, you, you do things, but then you, you kind of overdo it, and you might have all these layers of food, but then you add new layers of food to it. And he, he talked about the bourbon cake that not only has – crystallized ginger but it's got fresh ginger and then you're using ginger root beer and then yeah you know squeezing ginger juice and it's like you know that's that's just kind of what i do so you know i might take these four ingredients and then just find some indian spices to go in there to kind of ramp it up a little bit yeah more. uh-huh you can be a little extra but that's a good okay thing. good yeah <laughs> right? it's a big groaning pantry with a lot of stuff that's yeah outdated. exactly exactly you want to do one more round and then we'll we'll wrap it up yeah sure let's see what else we can come up with the good one was basil that's the flavor the okay. vegetable is potato all right the protein are nuts okay that's secret <laughs> ingredient one i don't know about that it's matzo what'd you get oh matzo okay so um i would have to now what's the thing where you can phone a friend uh-huh. i would call bonnie benwick oh, who sure. um, was the former uh, deputy food editor at the washington post who 
tested every single recipe in the new cookbook. I wow. sent to her email box over 100 recipes, and she never batted an eye. Uh-huh. And her, all her neighbors were the beneficiaries of all that testing. Wow, lucky. So, so she's kind of coaching me on Jewish cooking. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So I might um, – I have basil, I have potato, I have nuts. Um, this might be a little – um, oh my god, I don't even know. Some kind of hash, maybe. Okay, sure. Um, maybe it spreads in matzah, but I might. Sure. Oh yeah, hash nuts for some texture. Yeah, yeah. That that could come we'll together see. nicely. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll probably keep that that um, chickpea <laughs> uh, concoction handy too that's because that that might help us a little. Yeah, bit. sure. That's the one. Well, that was so fun. Thank you for playing along, um, Brian, and thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Well, thanks a lot. Appreciate it, Brian. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our Substack, which you can find at saltandspine.substack.com. For just a few dollars a month, you'll find tons of exclusive and bonus content from recipes, cookbook excerpts, essays, and more. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. We also love to see your ratings on Apple Podcasts. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Cleo Worcester, our kitchen correspondent to Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering both digital and in-person classes for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books, and to Monique Lamas at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.